This is Nick Miller from Jam Productions, and I'm on Promoter 101. Live from Wrigley Field, it's episode 98 of Promoter 101. It's out of here! Hey, Dan, it's time once again for us to nerd out to industry tales and news as it's Promoter 101, episode 98, so close to 100, featuring Live Nation president Mark Campana and Pearl Jam's fan club, the 10 Clubs, Karen Loria, recording live from the home of the world-famous Chicago Cubs, Wrigley Field. And our special guest host this week, Jake Snuffarowski. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you back. There's nothing I'd rather be doing than helping host Promoter 101 with my friend, Dirty Danny Steinberg. Hey, on top of the great interview we have from Wrigley Field, we also have Ticketmaster's David Marcus joining us to break down the technology that the 10 Club talked about to help that fan club service work, plus the news of the week. Something your listeners might not know is that David Marcus has one of the highest SAT scores in the history of the music business. It was a 1,601 that he scored. I gave him an extra point for being so damn handsome. I don't think that's actually how that works. But I imagine he tested quite off the charts. I believe that. David Marcus broke the mold, Dan. Quite an amazing, impressive guy. Let's get into it. Hey, everyone. This is Cindy Lynott. Kira Finkenberg. Patty Ann Tarleton. Whitney Bond. Amy Miller. John Holliday. Marcy Allen. Paula Palazzo. Becca Leifer. And you're listening to Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. And I'm on Promoter 101. Did you know you can listen to Promoter 101 pretty much anywhere now? I don't believe you, man. No, no, it's true. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Music. So we got some serious options for you. Follow Luke at W. Luke Pierce. I'm the Jew and the show's at Promoter 101 on Twitter. And I'm not looking at it, but it's like Jake at Rocks Off, right? At Jake Rocks Off, that's me. You can follow me, but only if you're over 18, please. <laughs> if you want to tell us something, you can reach out to us via email, too. Just go to Steiny at Promoter101.net. That's Steiny, as in George Steinbrenner or Dan Steinberg, S-T-E-I-N-Y at Promoter101.net. Ted Heineck with AC Entertainment, Vice President of Concerts. Welcome to Promoter 101, the greatest podcast in all the land. If you've missed any of our past podcasts, you can always catch up at Promoter101.net. This week, we feature a classic reissue of episode 55, and it's classic because that's what the script says and we never change it. Right, and it's not because of Sammy Hagar's on it, because we should have put him on episode 55, but this episode features Live Nation's co-president of the U.S. concerts, Bob Rue, joining us at the IEBA conference in Nashville, Tennessee. This session covers everything from ticketing to touring and talks about the world's largest promoter glowing globally and at home. The irony of Bob Rue being on this week for the reissue, well, we've got Mark Campana on is really funny. That just kind of happened organically, actually, because it's 55 was in the count. But it's pretty awesome that we have both guys that are co-presidents of America for Live Nation. Anyway, don't forget to drop us a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Promoter 101 is free, so we badly need your approval. Sign up, listen, tell your friends. 
Come on, we're begging you here. Hi, this is Heath Miller. Becca Leifer. Ed Mike Cohn. Derek Dimenstein. Jason Kupperman. Jason Miller. John Schur. Marsha Vlasic. Mike Fruitman. Ricardo Baca. Peter Schwartz. Nick Storch. I'm on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. I'm on Promoter 101. News of the Week. Ladies and gentlemen, live from downtown Auburn, Washington, it's Promoter 101, and it's time for the news of the week. We're joined from globally over Skype communications from Billboard and Amplified Magazine, the wonderful, famous, talented writer of the stars, Mr. Dave Brooks. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. A great intro, Stoney. Thanks for having me. Always love doing it. There's a lot of stuff going on in this holiday week to talk about in the news. Let's jump first to Taylor Swift. There's big stuff going on with Big Machine, right? Right. You know, Taylor's contract is set to expire later this year. It'll actually be the one-year anniversary of the release of her most recent album, Reputation, which will basically bring her to close a contract she started in 2006 with Scott Borchetta and Big Machine You know, for her very first self-titled album when she was only 16 years old. She's fulfilled her contract, a free agent, and probably one of the most talked about signings out there right now. Is it part of the contract that she had to make Scott Borchetta, one of the most famous people in the music industry as well, because if that was, she fulfilled her contract, Dave. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, he has definitely risen with her. If you look at the market share of Big Machine, if you look at like how much business they do, I was reading in a Billboard story today by Melinda Newman that you know Taylor accounts for some like thirty four percent of the revenue at the label, you know, which also has like a Florida George line and Thomas Rhett. But I mean, there's no doubt that Scott wants to get Taylor back, you know, re-sign her for another deal. And I think, you know, money is one offer, and I'm sure he'll be able to match whatever the big labels are able to offer. I think the real key is going to be her masters. You know, her masters from the six albums she released. He controls those, obviously, being the label. And that's one thing I think that like he can dangle for her that she might bite and say, hey, you know, let's do the deal. It's a winning team. I don't know if anybody's going to want to change that formula right now because it seems like they've both done well for each other. Yeah, they've definitely done well for each other. Although I guess the one thing I would say is that, you know, Big Machine at the end of the day is a real national powerhouse. And, you know, Taylor's really like shifted to pop. So if you look at some of her distribution is being done now on the pop side by Universal. So she's already kind of working with labels. So I have no doubt that Borchetta can do it and push to the pop world, but it's not his first strength. And I think that's just one more chip at the bar bargaining table, you know, as they go through these long negotiations to figure out where she's going to land. All right. Well, this will be interesting to watch, but I mean, marketing Taylor, as long as you get her into the stores, you've been successful. Distribution is king. And on top of that, Scott knows how to sell fucking records. And Taylor probably doesn't need anybody's help at that. She is a brand within herself and possibly the biggest one in the industry at this point. There's very few contemporaries who can compare what she can do, even still actually selling albums, right? Which hardly anybody can do now. If you look at the Billboard charts, almost all the number one albums are driven by like bundling and streaming. Taylor still sells records to fans. I mean, she does it through this last time she did it through some kind of, you know, interesting boosting to, uh, for tour tickets. But still, people buying copies of the record over a million sold. That just doesn't happen anymore. Let's uh, move on. I'm hearing Wall Street News is coming to the music business. What's going on there? 
Last week, Eventbrite filed paperwork to launch its IPO with the Securities and Exchange Commission. The company is going to be traded on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol EB. I think if you look at the financials, you'll kind of see two things. The first is that you know the company has posted some significant losses, a number that almost surprised people, about $40 million in 2016 and about $38.5 in 2017. So through the end of 18, we're at about $100 million, which is kind of a crazy number to look at if you're one of these small competing ticketing services. That said, the company's year-over-year growth is staggering. I mean, they posted something like 51% increase in revenues in the last two years. So, I mean, this company, they're aiming for a billion dollars in transactional fees over the next few years. So, a lot of growth opportunity in that stock. What I'm hearing from analysts I talk to is they're feeling pretty good about this company and it's a chance to kind of get into the ticketing space. There's only really one other major publicly traded company in life entertainment, and that's Ticketmaster. Let's take a second, though, because I think you're looking at the glass 90% empty, and I'm looking at a 10% full. So what you said was in 2016, they lost $40.4 million. But in 2017, 38.5. So what I'm hearing is they had $2 million better year between 16 and 17. That's growth, Dave. Right. That is growth. And like I was saying, the revenue in that same period jumped up 51%. So it's obviously they do have pretty strong growth. Right. And they're investing. I mean, they bought Ticketfly. I mean, that's a serious platform and that's obviously a serious brand to financially invest in. So some of those things are, you know, huge capital expenditures. So clearly buying market share and stepping into a bigger light. And they got Andrew Druskin on their team, for God's sakes. That's not nothing. Right. Exactly. Ticketfly purchase was just one of eight acquisitions they've made. You know, they've purchased some ticketing companies in Australia and Europe as well that don't get as much attention, but kind of have helped lay the groundwork to really be a a global platform. So I will say one final thing I thought was interesting was they they addressed the cost of the hacking attack earlier this summer on Ticketfly. And what they disclosed in this report was that the hack cost the company $6.6 million. And they broke that out as 6.3 in lost revenue, which I'm assuming would be ticketing fees. 300,000 in expenses. They capped the time on that to June 30th, which is probably the fiscal year. I'm imagining they've incurred more costs since then. They're doing an expensive investigation. They're also making settlement to Riot Fest. That number will probably grow, but we're kind of getting an idea of what this cost and getting a bigger picture of what occurred with the hack because we really don't know a lot of the details. The takeaway is that while the hack wasn't expensive, it really isn't slowing Eventbrite down. They're more or less staying on pace with where they need to be. You can't really prepare for that happening, but they seem to do a pretty amazing job fixing the world when it did. It made for a couple of tough weeks for some people, but it seemed like they kept the machine rolling at all costs, which is impressive. I think they really use the hack to move more people onto the Eventbrite platform, you know, which is kind of an unexpected benefit, I guess you'd say. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see what becomes of Ticketfly, you know, in the next few years. I mean, it seems like it's just going to be mothballed. The main focus of the platform will be Eventbrite. But, you know, I'm sure that's still to be determined. It's possible they could have different products different for different needs. Breaking news coming out of New York, 
a comeback that maybe nobody expected to happen so quickly? Louis C.K., the, uh, the comedian who got caught up in the Me Too scandal with, I think, some like five women making complaints about him. He kind of made a surprise appearance on stage Monday night at the Comedy Cellar in New York, kind of one of those comedy clubs for comedians. He had a surprise performance. He played for about 15 minutes, and I'm hearing he did not address like the scandal and kind of what happened, but he was generally greeted with positive reaction from the audience seems like he's testing the waters out there, as is others, you know, who would caught up in the scandal for a possible return to the public life. Bob Lefsitz wrote about this in his letter last night, so this is super timely. The guy apologized immediately, which I don't think many people have, but that was a pretty honorable thing. Regardless of what he did, he apologized and owned it, which I thought was a really cool thing that he owned his actions. Yes, I did this. He did go away. Does he have to go away forever? And I think the industry doesn't get to say that. The public does. And we're about to find out what the public thinks based on how it was handled, how he went away, and how he comes back. And I think this is a new world. And who's to say what's the right amount of time and what's okay? Kathy Griffin did something publicly that was very out there that got shunned. She went away. And was able to come back actually stronger than she had been in a very long time with a very successful tour. So I think it's a matter of timing and just politically dangerous to guess. And I guess if he comes back too early, that could really backfire. But seemingly he's wiggled his toe pretty safely, Dave. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely he's kind of seeing, you know, what the public mood is right now. And I think we're going to see others do that as too. I mean, what is the appropriate amount of time to disappear? I think it, it, it depends on each person in each instance and what, and what kind of claims were made. You know, Louis, is the time right? I don't know. But I think what you you nailed it right there. It's not up to us. It's up to the public. And it's up to if people want to see him perform. Okay, from comedy clubs in New York to finding the coolest way to get backstage. Dave, there's a new trick, huh? Exactly. What we're seeing right now is it's so difficult now for artists to actually sell albums, right, and get the equivalents they need to chart on the Billboard albums chart that people are bundling all sorts of stuff with digital albums. And the latest trend I'm seeing is selling these get-in-early passes to concerts before the concerts are even announced or placed on sale. Travis Scott did it recently. Nicki Minaj did it as well for her tour that has since been rescheduled. And now Ariana Grande is kind of taking a turn, selling what she's calling priority passes to her upcoming tour, which I said hasn't been put on sale or announced yet, and then bundling it with her new Sweetener album and then submitting that as a album equivalent sale. All they get you is in the door before everybody else. So it's 10 bucks for this pass plus four seven. 73 and shipping and basically you can get into the venue earlier than the general public why would you want to do that maybe just get your seat and hang out sooner even if you do an arena show like you know there's no nothing special about getting there an hour early and sitting in an empty arena so the big question i want to know is like how does this impact people like you signing like the promoter like ariana and other artists sell these things and you've got to kind of be the one right to deliver and making it happen not necessarily getting any of the money though well look we saw a little bit of this happen apparently with lock-in last week we joked about in the tweets this year that some of the acts were caught selling their passes online. And that's different, but it's a little bit of the same thing. Public is trying to get backstage and have that experience, that backstage experience, that legitimate feel of being able to touch school. Maybe I can bump into Drake and get backstage and get to hang with him. And maybe he'll invite me to play video games with him in his dressing room. Kind of that Wayne's world hanging out with Alice Cooper vibe, right? But look, it doesn't fucking exist. Backstage at the arena, 
the acts show up for sound check and they usually are ushered out to go do press or dinner with the labels or retail or something else. At least the headliners are. Those guys are moving 24 seven. When they're in town, they're not just there to play the show nine times out of 10. They have like seven other things they have to do between sound check and the time they take stage. It's a security issue. It's a liability issue because we've got snakes running across the floor. And for those of you that don't know the industry very well, I mean the industry snakes, not actual live animals. But there are things that we're not set up for. We're literally construction site until the show is up and ready and we open the doors. In most cases, it's a hard hat floor area where you literally can't be even on the floor until the hard hat's approval has come off and everything is set and locked in place. So having people just randomly running around the venue is a liability issue that Peter Temkins would beat the shit out of me for. So yeah, that's a concern on every goddamn level. I hate to call it a money grab. It's obviously a way to kind of generate revenue, but it's really, it's kind of just a trick too to juice your billboard score and to get that number one. And I mean, let's be honest, just, you know, having the number one album in 2018 does not mean what it used to mean. And it just seems like everyone's just kind of coming up with the next gimmick. And you wonder if the fans really care about the, the, the number one album or it's just an internal thing. The whole thing just kind of seems not super well thought out. It sounds like self promotion and you know you and me hate that <laughs> dave i don't know if you've heard about this but i'm hearing word coming out of virginia that bill reed is no longer at aeg and obviously they bought rising tide a handful of years ago his company and they have the norva and some of the coolest things but i'm hearing word that he is no longer with those guys and i mean he's like the bill graham of that area that's a big deal right yeah, it is a really big deal. I mean, he really developed the venue and kind of not only that, but the boathouse, you know, the abyss. And I mean, and he really made the Norva kind of a national destination. So that's interesting to hear. This comes probably what, three years after selling to AEG? Three to five, something like that. I mean, it, it, the years kind of fly by in those deals, but he was clearly there. I think they had changed the name of that one to a Bowery office, but like still. Bill Reed, like the guy is a legend and one of the nicest guys in the biz. I don't know anyone that doesn't like him. Well, we'll have to look into this one more, get to the bottom of the story. This is a good news tip, Steiny. I appreciate that you put this out there and we'll find out what's going on. All right. Well, Promoter 101, joined by the great Dave Brooks. Thanks so much for being on the Promoter 101 podcast and bringing the news of the week to our fans and listeners. Thanks, Dave. Anytime, Steiny. Hey, this is Mark Geiger from WME, William Morris Endeavor Entertainment, coming to you on Dan Steinberg's podcast. I wish we could get a drum roll because right now it's everyone's favorite time, the announcement of the Promoter 101 Badass of the Week. This week, we're really excited to announce the Promoter 101 Badass of the Week is going to CAA's own Lee Goforth. He's an amazing agent and a great dude that everybody just loves. So there you go. This week's Promoter 101 Badass of the Week. Congratulations, Lee. Hey, it's Mark David, Steve Strange, Toby Layton Pipe, Stuart Galbraith, Simeon Galperin, I'm Ralph James, Jed Cohen, Julia Frank, Jeff Goodman, Jamie Adler, and Frank Wing, Doug Edley, David Klein, Stephen Riff, Tom Chauncey, and, and we're, we're on, on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. In our feature interview this week, we've got Live Nation President Mark Campana and from Pearl Jam's fan club, The Ten Club, Karen Loria, recording live from the home of the world famous Chicago Cubs, Wrigley Field joined by Live Nation's Mark Camtana and Karen Loria. 
Karen's with the fan club of Pearl Jam, and you guys have got just a sensational, really hands-on customer service business. Yeah, we consider it more of a boutique business. It's very customer service oriented, very hands-on. We have a lot of direct contact with our fans. We're talking with them all the time. I personally am responding to their emails and that is something that I've done from the beginning through my career. So establishing relationships with these folks is our number one priority. Something goes wrong. You're hearing directly from the fans and you're just making sure that the service is there because the band cares that much. Yeah, absolutely. We're taking phone calls, responding to emails. We're monitoring our message boards all the time, monitoring the chatter through even the fan pages, knowing what they want, how they're experiencing seeing these shows, everything down to the online shopping experience, every interaction that they have with the band, knowing what they're feeling is what their experience is, is what helps shape how we do it again the next time. 10 Club is the name of the fan club, and it's without question one of the bigger fan clubs in all of music. Can you tell us how big your base is? It's big. How big it is, that is proprietary information. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of people, right? It's we have our free membership base, which is just anyone that wants to come to the website and wants to get Pearl Jam information, show information, music. And then we have our paid membership, and that's the 10 Club. It's interesting because as the band goes further in their career, the numbers are growing and growing. And we're finding that a big part of that is because the band is now becoming a generational connection between parents and their kids. So it's really cool to see these numbers growing just within a family. So in some cases, we have three generations of fans in the fan club. It's pretty amazing. The retention is amazing because of that. How did you get involved with the ticketing business and the band itself? Well, I started, I moved to Seattle from Buffalo, New York, where I was working for Ani DeFranco, her record label. You were at Righteous Babe. I was at Righteous Babe. Yeah. Awesome. Going to so school you were for Buffalo. Scott and Anna and all those guys. I sure did. Yeah. I relocated to Seattle just for a change of pace. And I started working at the small rock clubs, started in the box office, and then ended up doing concert production. Which clubs were you at? I was at a club called Numos, and then I did some work cool. for the Showbox, two pretty popular. So Stephen and Jason, then on to like the AEG guys. Yep, very good friends of mine. And through that, I started meeting some of the folks that worked at the Ten Club. It was around 2006. The Avocado album was coming out, and they needed some help, some part-time help stuffing envelopes for the upcoming big tour. I started doing that in the day, go stuff envelopes at the Pearl Jam warehouse and then run to the rock club and do a show till settlement at three o'clock in the morning and do it all over again. And then over time, working with the organization and opportunity opened up and I transitioned to a full-time job there. And so, and that was in 2006. So I've seen a wave of new fans coming in and watching the fan club grow and the way people listen to music is different from then to now too. So right, they used to have these plastic things that people had yeah. used to get music on. Yeah, it's interesting to watch and to see the trends with 
what the general public, the way they choose to listen to music, and then the fan club. It's a very different culture. But even back then, it was so big of a fan club that you would stuff envelopes all day long every day. That was Oh, that yeah. Was... It was a full-time job. I was working 40 hours a week for about six months stuffing envelopes between a U.S. tour, a European tour, and I think we might have had... That's mostly fan club ticketing. You're stuffing That's envelopes all tickets, fan right? Club. Okay. That's all fan club. Yeah. And there were a team of about three of us doing this full time three people just full-time just putting tickets in envelopes yeah you know, that's yep, a pretty just big sitting, fan there, club. sitting there with a seating map and boxes of tickets and envelopes okay now let's shift over and talk about how you got in business mark with the world of pearl jam because you do more than one or two shows you do a lot of their business yeah i had the pleasure of working with them and in the u.s probably about 90 95 of the shows i have the opportunity to work with them on so the first time i would have seen the band would have been in 92 on Lollapalooza. so we talked about earlier really stands out for me because that Lala Pearl Jam was the second act on the bill. And Lush went on around four o'clock, I think, maybe three, four o'clock. And by the time Pearl Jam hit the stage, four thirty, five o'clock, those venues were stuffed. And uh, Lala was in its infancy. So the first year, the crowds would show up a little later in the evening and you didn't really see the big crowds early on. So my introduction to the band was seeing them at Lollapalooza. I think the first one that I saw was down in Cincinnati. And it was a phenomenon. And to see the size of the crowds in 92 out there at 4.30 in the afternoon to see the band, a friend of yours was stage manager, Kevin Lyman. <laughs> Warp sewer. Exactly. But back then, he was actually a stage manager for Lala. And I remember that we had something happen that I'd never seen before at a show. And that was the rail between the lawn and the pavilion actually snapped because the crowd was surging towards the stage and they were just so excited by everything that was going on during that set that PJ was doing. And I was taken back and, and I had to get back to find out how much longer are they going to be on stage. And I met Kevin in the heat of the moment and he's like, dude, we'll have a plan. We'll make some announcements. Everything will be fine. And they ended up playing what I knew was going to be about three more songs. But when I was telling security, they thought it was three more minutes. <laughs> so when they, when they ended up playing the next song... And the next song, I thought I was going to get lynched in Cincinnati that night, but no one got hurt. It was just the energy that I saw that night. And then from there, we went into the verses cycle and I found myself helping the band find uh, alternative locations to play because that's when they were running into their problems with Ticketmaster. And I was working for the Nederlander family. They were very open to using their facilities. And that's what you're talking about when you're saying alternative sites. You're not talking about a random field. You're talking about no. venues that weren't Ticketmaster clients. Or were strong enough clients of Ticketmaster that would push back and say, no. And in the case of the Nederlanders, Fred Rosen pushed on them really hard and they said, well, we're going to do mail order for these guys. And what's the problem with the mail order. You let us do mail order for Broadway shows. And in fact, we're about to put Phantom of the Opera on sale by mail order. And then whatever's left, we'll put on sale to the general public. And that's all we're going to do with Pearl Jam. We're going to go mail order on the tickets. And if there's anything left, we'll go and... How is one show any different than the other show playing the same venue? That was what the Nederlanders positioned me to be able to say. And since they own the Yankees, they have a little bit of power in a ton of Broadway theaters. And they threatened that they weren't going to do Phantom with them if they didn't let them do it on Pearl Jam. So... Might have carried some weight. It was really cool. I remember Joey Nederlander, one of the elders of the of the family coming down to the Masonic when we played the Versus tour. And he was like, I need to come down and see this Pearl Jam thing. And I was like, and Joe was probably 75 at the time. 
And we had probably for a 4,000 seater, we probably had about 50,000 entries to that mail order thing. And we just kept building. And I had the opportunity to work with them on a lot of shows and the next tour and the next tour. And over time, got to um, really understand what they're looking for and understand the culture and the community of this band. Just grew the relationship over time. You're a promoter. You know how that works as you work hard for them. This one worked as it's supposed to. You know, you work hard and they return uh, work to you by letting you do more shows. All right. And it's a full circle of irony as you were at Nederlander and they were trying not to play at Ticketmaster venues. And now you and the band have come full circle is now you're at Live Nation, which owns Ticketmaster. And they're yeah. heavily involved with the Ticketmaster product system, which seems to work all the way around. So it's been a full yeah. circle between standing up in front of Congress with the band and now yeah. being very embraced with the technology that they're using to service the fans. And I'm going to let Karen talk a bit about this, but I'll give you the kind of the background on it. Karen and I, along with a number of the other people in her organization, found ourselves talking about some of the hoops and hurdles that the fan club had to go through in order to get their tickets on nights of shows. Because not only do they make sure that the fan club is treated with great respect and white glove service, but they want to make sure that the fan club is who's actually using the tickets. And in doing so... You're talking about resale and avoiding Yeah, that. they wanted to make sure that... The, the fan is really the fan going, not somebody pretending to be a fan. Without a doubt. And, and what Karen and I talk about is making sure that the real fan gets the ticket at the right price. In doing the hard ticket and working in the, you know, in the old Jurassic age of physical tickets, that meant that the band had to have their fan club line up sometimes a couple of hours before the show started. And we would physically have, when she's talking about stuffing tickets, she was literally stuffing tickets for future shows. All of those tickets got put into a road case. That road case got packed in the truck with the band gear. And every day it would come off the truck and we'd get sent to an office backstage somewhere. And Karen, who was out on the road with the band, would actually take the envelopes, figure out tonight's show's envelopes, get them up to the box office. Fans would line up, they would get their tickets, and then they had to go directly into the venue. So get your tickets, go out and have a beer, get your tickets, go have dinner. Mm -mm, not the way it worked. We literally had forced will call and forced into the venue. And what you mean is they literally pick it up and into the door. There is no wandering away. You Can't go back straight into the venue once you get your tickets. Yeah, you couldn't go tailgate some more. You couldn't go over to the merch stand that was outside. Which is you. for your hardest core fans, isn't exactly the experience you're looking for. Listen, and the way that this fan club treats their customer, but really the fan of the band, this was the one inconsistency, right? They treated them so well on so many levels and gave them so many privileges, but then to treat them in a fashion where they had to get their tickets and go directly into the venue. There was technology a didn't exist yet to handle that problem any better way. By making them go through these steps, it definitely weeds out the bad actors that are just interested in getting in the fan club to get those desirable seats. I personally hand select the seats that the 10 club get seated in. And then we assign the seats based on seniority in the fan club. And there's no program that does that. It's a person that goes through that and hand assigns those seats. You're not seats. an algorithm, you're a person. <laughs> but yeah. you're literally, okay, that's a cool seat. Yeah, we sit with a map and we say, okay, well, if you're here, that would be better than over here. Because really the sight line, even though technically that seems like it would be better, the sight line is going to be better here. And so we go through that process. Or I'm a Mercredi fan. I want to be oh, over, yeah. right? I want to be on the Mercredi side. I want to be on Stone Can side. Can you say that? 
I want to be closer to this guy or that guy? We don't go to that level because we do keep it pretty seniority based. We're assigning the seats based on that seniority. But it's almost like a sports team with season seats. The longer you're there, the better seat yeah, you get. Yeah, exactly. Something I want to share about venues too as, as a promoter for the band. My job working with Don Muller is to make sure that not only are we selecting the right venues where the show fits properly and that we're going to have a great night for the fans, but we go through the ticketing ride very carefully with each of the venues before we select that venue. And one of the elements in the ticket rider says that the fan club, the 10 club tickets will be placed in the manifest prior to any venue holds, promoter holds. We don't care if you're sponsor, your investors in your building, whatever it is, the 10 club. Karen's tickets are ahead of every other hold. We have had buildings who think that they're going to work Don over in terms of, well, you know, yeah, I'm working, you know, and drag it out. And there will come a fail-safe moment where Don will say to them, you do realize that every one of those holds has got to be moved behind the 10 club. And we've had venues at the week before the on sale. You, yeah, and I've, yeah. you and I have worked through this. That venue has been removed from the routing because they thought you literally the venue played the game of chicken and they lost. They lost. Right. Yeah. We moved to show. And for the which has got to annoy the hell out of you once you've built what will be a sold out arena show or a stadium because those offers don't just come together. Each one has to be handcrafted. And listen, Don's been doing this a long time, so he can smell it out when he's like, Mark, they're dragging their feet. Why don't you check in with them? What's going on here? What's going on there? And we can sense when they think they're going to get us backed into a corner and we're not going to be routed. And usually Don and I have an alternative routed so that if we think that we smell a rat in terms of them trying to take advantage of timeline on announcing a show, we'll make sure we have an alternative so that we make sure that Karen gets what she needs in terms of her seats. So they literally protect that manifest in a fashion that no other band in the industry does. Well, a scenario like this summer, at least in the US, where the three major ballparks that you're playing are ballparks you guys have all played in the past. We've had some history with them and they understand the ticketing rider. But even them, you know, they'll get a call, you know, from their owner or from some important sponsor. And it's incumbent upon them to say no, because they're not going to get the locations that they're used to getting. And they're going to we'll, get tickets. They're just not going to get the right. single best seat in the house. Yeah. And that goes to the 10 club. Pretty awesome that you guys fight the fight to the point where yeah. you won't play the room or, or possibly the market if the venue doesn't play ball the way you want them to. They got to where they are through the incredible integrity they have musically and in their business practices as well. We support them 100%. We'll talk a little bit, though, as you asked about you know this technology thing. And yeah, let's talk about Ticketmaster presence and how together with Ticketmaster and your Live Nation relationship, we're able to go to the table and see if you could create something to expedite that process. I'll start it off by saying Karen and I found ourselves down in uh, Buenos Aires. There was a stadium show down there where we had the opportunity to talk a bit. And I was telling her about how the technology's on the horizon. That's probably four years ago now. Yeah. And the technology's on the horizon where we'll be able to put the ticket on the phone. And we had a great conversation and she became quite eager to understand is that technology, where is it? What is it out there? Because Karen wanted to get rid of that road case, right? That was full of tickets. She wanted to get the staff working on other service elements of the 10 club, not really spending all that right, time. Three salaries that could be used on other things. Exactly. We at Ticketmaster, on the Ticketmaster side, were in the process of working on it, but they went out and started looking 
looking at other technology. And I, I think that's when I'll turn it over to you in terms of what you guys found and then how we ended up going back to Ticketmaster to see if right. they could refine it. Right. And this, like Mark said, this is a, a conversation that started several years ago and we have been tracking the progress of the present system as it was being developed. And then it was about a year ago that we started shopping around and meeting with different technology teams, uh, companies out there to see what was available. And after flying around meeting with various people, what we landed on was Ticketmaster actually has something here that speaks to us. And they were very eager to find ways and sort of reinvent the wheel to some degree to service our fans the way that we would do it. Instead of just saying, this is a product that we have, this is how it works here, use it. I got a little bit of room to come in and say, now that's great. What if we just tweaked this? What if we just tweaked that? And then we can keep closer eye on where those tickets are going, make sure that it's still within our culture. And they were very responsive to that. There was a really important element. And the, the most important element for Karen and the band was transferability. Now, everything in the ticketing business today is about transferring tickets. I buy the ticket, I send it to my cousin. My cousin sells it to his next door neighbor. His next door neighbor sells it to some kid in another city who said, and it's all about transferability. Karen shows up and says, I want to transfer the ticket once to the 10 club member, and I only want one of the two tickets to be transferred to their guest. Right. That's it. And that was a major you know, yeah, hurdle. That was something you spent a lot of time yeah. with. <laughs> Yeah. Coming in and saying, I do want them to be able to transfer a ticket, but only one time and only one of those two. Why would you do that? Well, because we want to lock down the ticket scalping. We want your friend to be able to come with you, but oh, your friend can't come in the door at the same time as you. Well, we got a solution for that, but just your friends. It's not going to just end up on the secondary market. It's not going to be passed around and lose control out of who ultimately ends up with that ticket and for how much. We wanted to take all the little entrepreneurs out of the game. Yeah. Right. We, we were looking at the 10 club. We had some problems and issues that we wanted to solve waiting in line, right? The idea of printing these tickets in advance in the road case, yeah. you know, it was the size of a coffin that they were carrying yeah. around full of tickets. So there were problems and there were solutions that Karen was looking for with the, with the Pearl Jam camp. And Ticketmaster was willing to spend the time to literally code the system in a fashion that would allow Karen to solve the problems that they were looking for. I have this weird feeling, and we haven't talked about it, but I'm guessing Pearl Jam doesn't use Ticketmaster Platinum, or do they? Well, it's interesting you should ask about that because they do use Platinum, but we use it for a Vitalogy charity and how we use so it. So the money doesn't go in their pockets. It so does it's not. It's not going in the secondary, so this, but it's going to something positive. This, okay. Again, they looked at all of the technology that was available. They were watching how other bands used it for other means. This year in the stadiums that we are playing in, including Missoula, the baseball parks and Missoula had 50 tickets a night. They were on the Platinum system. We used John Ketchum, who runs Platinum for Ticketmaster, and he worked with the Vitalogy team, and they literally priced those tickets and moved those tickets through the Platinum system with every dollar of the Platinum sale, all of the lift. So the base ticket price went into the box office statement, and all of the lift went over to the Vitalogy fund. So we use Platinum. They got their donation receipts. It's a... Yeah, so we're doing... Yeah, yeah so every one so of they them... They found would, a righteous way to use the system. That's yeah. amazing. And like, it was a forced will call and only the buyer could pick the ticket up. Your time with Ani DeFranco and her 
view on fan first and how to treat the fans moving into Pearl Jam who have a very similar philosophy that must have been like coming home all over again. Oh yeah, it's actually it was so crazy the parallels between the two camps when I came into the Pearl Jam warehouse for the first time it was like bizarro world. Like This is the Seattle version of what I just came from in a slightly different culture and a different city but it was very familiar to me and I feel so lucky to uh, I started working with Ani when I was 19 to have been basically my entire career been working for artists that have the same mindset that I can get behind. That DNA is not found often in the uh, musician community. To be able to work with a couple of artists like that is pretty special. Let's continue on with the righteousness of the band. You guys in Seattle pulled together 12 and a half to 13 million dollars to donate to different homeless charities through the United Way on the Seattle shows. Yeah, I think it landed at about 11.5. And growing because yeah, of the yeah, restaurants. Continuing. Right, there were restaurants that were collecting money on the uh, from sales on nights of shows and there were right. uh, a couple of other variable aspects to it. So when those come in, I think we'll be over 12 and a half. There was some corporate donation help. There was. And the band came to the table financially as well. Band started it off by saying, we're going to put a $10 million goal on this and we're putting the first million in. So you're talking about money that isn't attached to the growth of the show, but is being brought in through different things the band was doing to raise awareness and rivaled what would gross multiple stadium shows on its own for the charity raise. No doubt. What you've got to remember is the band on every show is taking $2 a ticket, putting that into the foundation. Uh, about half of it stays in local charities, and the other half is used by the various national and worldwide. To- Beyond that $2 a ticket, the home show fund, which was put together to, you know, there's a lot of programs in your hometown that have had their budgets cut. There's a lot of great stuff that's going on in Seattle that unfortunately didn't have the funding. And when you got a guy like McCready who grew up there, when you got Stone, who was so committed to this cause, and they get together with their bandmates and say, let's do something. And that's when they said, let's come up with 10 million. That's when they got involved with a number of really big foundations in town. And then, you know, it's a combination of companies like Starbucks and the hometown crew, so to speak, that are out there with all, you know, a lot of very successful businesses there. Add to that a couple of big foundations that came in. And then you got a lot of small entrepreneurs. You know, you literally have small grocery stores. You've got individuals. You've got companies like ours. How do you not get behind that? Oh, Live Nation helped out too? Absolutely. We're in deep with the band and you, you don't stand on the sideline when you see an artist doing these sort of things. You said half of the money stays locally. So when you played Missoula, of those $2 you collected, one of those dollars went back to the local charities. Yep. The foundation. Yeah. And the, we're, I think we're up to $3. Oh, three. Now. I'm $3 sorry. $3 this year we're at three. Yeah. Thank you for correcting me. This year is, we went is to it three. Still, is it 50% still that stays in $3 increase? It's still 50% of that goes locally? Right. Roughly. Okay, yeah. cool. Who picks those charities? We have a foundation that's run by a small staff in the Seattle office, and the band ultimately picks those charities, and that staff basically fulfills what their ethos is through that foundation. And we'll, as a local promoter, will go find local charities if they have not located, the, as Karen quite appropriately referred to, find those that have the ethos they're looking for. Right. And we'll get names for them and just yeah. make sure that they fit properly with what the band's trying to accomplish. This is around the world. Any market oh, yeah. you guys are playing, yeah. $3 and half the money is staying in that local city. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah. 
we were just down in South America. I know a bunch of money was routed to the rainforests while we were down there. It's They're trying to educate themselves on what are the issues locally that we want to help out with. Sometimes when we go back to the city, the next time it might float through whatever the cause is now that we want to focus on. It does change and it evolves based on what the current climate is, what the needs are, what's happening socially. So they have to be really in tune with what's going on in the world. And the foundation really helps support these issues. They're in tune with the local communities. Um, When you're a Pearl Jam promoter, your job is not only to make sure that the stage is set properly and all of the various pieces are brought together to make for a great show, but it's your responsibility also to get information both to the foundation in terms of charity and also get information to the band and to Ed so that when they're up there on stage, they feel connected to the community. So they're talking about what's going on with the local sports teams. They've done their research. They're talking about issues that are taking place in a particular market, they've done their homework. This band doesn't have a cheat sheet that they learned as they were walking to the stage. They do their homework. And when they go walk on stage, they know what fan club members in some situations, because they're out there with signs, letting them know what's going on. And then there's also the research they've done to make sure they know what's going on in the local politics, what's going on in the local community, and the issues for that city, or for that matter, in national politics, they're all front of mind for the band. You guys no longer do paper tickets for the fan club. It's all electronic, right? As of about two weeks ago, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so if you have a smartphone, you're good, but if you have a flip phone, you have a problem. Right, yeah. How do you deal with that? So we do have a couple of customer service windows at each venue that can deal with resolution. So if you come to the stadium, you'll print a ticket for those three people that haven't bought a phone Yeah, and it's not a hard stock ticket. It's the print at home PDF type ticket. We do it on the spot. They enter right away, that sort of thing. So we have a solution in place for that. But you've gotten rid of the will call issue by doing this. We've got rid of the will call, which when you're talking stadium shows, that's a pretty massive will call. And what we're finding is that box offices aren't very big anymore. And in some cases, new stadiums that are being built, they're questioning whether or not they even need a box office. Some are exploring kiosk concepts. Well, that would put us out of business if we're in the will call business, right? So we had to sort of be proactive about that and think about, you know, how can we fix the problems that we're having, but also a problem that might be on the horizon. Yeah, others will have to deal with it. We sold some smartphones the last couple of months, <laughs> as, as you can tell them a little bit about. Yeah. People literally buying smartphones and getting rid of their flip phones. Just so scared. So scared that, you know, they'd get to the venue or they just wanted to have that comfort and knowing that they're good and ready to get in the venue. So they, they made the transition from flip phone to smartphone, but we see some flip phones at that customer service window for sure. (laughs) Let's uh, talk about verified fan for a second. Seattle was besides the fan club, completely verified fan, correct? Yes. Two full stadium shows completely. And then the other two baseball stadiums on the tour, Chicago at Wrigley and Boston, everything but the team season ticket holders bought through Verified Fan as well, right? There are some community tickets that are required as well. Those didn't yeah. go people through. That live around. Yeah, but, right. the, but for the most part. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like if you didn't happen to live within the sound ordinance area of the, the, the venue. The teams would have to explain what it is, but we... But for we, the most part, yeah. almost yeah. all of the tickets besides mm-hmm. what the, the venues needed to happen for their season ticket holders. Right. And, and I do I do believe that the Cubs, if I remember correctly, utilized verified fan for their pre-sale. Uh, the, they did. And, and the neighborhood the, sale. And, and the neighborhood sale. Okay. So how is that helping cut down on secondary market sales? Or is it? The secondary market 
it's near impossible to make it go away entirely. But what I saw in Verified Fan was the removal of the bots from the equation, which is a big deal. I'm getting those emails from fans, getting those phone calls from fans upset that are not in the fan club, but upset because tickets sold out in three seconds. They never even had an opportunity to view a ticket in their shopping cart. And we look at the reports afterwards and we, you know, no matter how many limitations you set up on a transaction, you see these tickets dumping into these users' accounts. It's all... It's a bot. It's a robot. Yeah. It's a robot. Just jump in the line. So we wanted to address that. And it's been a difficult road for ticketing companies to find the, the right solution for that. But in our research, I found that, okay, verified fan, this may be the route to go. I can't ignore ignore it. I can't let this be an option out there and just ignore it when I know the fans, this is an issue. The robot is a massive issue. So anything that's out there that can help remove the robot from the equation, I'm all for it. And these are not 10 club. This is general public. It doesn't matter. You want to get the real fans in the building at the right price. What kind of cut down on secondary market do you guys believe you're seeing because of Verified Fan? Well, I can say Seattle was pretty significant. It's funny because I actually got complaints from people saying, uh, you know, I missed out on the ticket sale and I can't even buy off StubHub. There's nothing there. Yeah, it was significant. I think I'd rely on David Marcus and the guys at Ticketmaster. If you follow up with them, they could give you precision on that. But Karen's right. You, You couldn't really buy a ticket on the secondary market in Seattle. And it's been dramatically reduced in Chicago and Boston. So verified fan, look, it's a tool and it's a tool that's been effective. It's a little bit of work for the fan. You know, if you're going to try to game the system, you're going to have to go to great lengths. And more than likely, you're not going to be able to use a bot. You're not going to be able to get in. You're going to have to risk losing your verified fan authorization uh, when you show up because Ticketmaster is scouring those secondary sites and making sure that if a ticket shows up, that's a verified fan ticket. A lot of states won't let you pull the ticket. So we can't really go out and cancel their tickets, but they'll lose their privilege. So they may be, they may have, they may have gamed us, but they lose that and their IP address, their email address, their credit card number, their telephone number, their blood type, we're going to find you and make sure that you can't be a verified fan for a future show. Normally when a show goes on sale in the first 10 minutes as a promoter, we see that first bump of 10%, 20%, 30%, 80% of the house goes, particularly on the pre-sale. And you know a good percentage of that is the scalpers. In this case, it's the fans. And you guys still blew through the houses. Multiple stadiums in three major markets. You sold out a tertiary market in a stadium as well. Is there something smaller than tertiary? Because Missoula is not a big city to have 27,000. It was a big night for Missoula. With that in mind, you know that the demand is real. They're actually fans buying those tickets on the on sale and they went immediately. All the shows sold out immediately. So with that in mind, how many more Seattle's and Boston's and Chicago's could the guys roll through in the stadiums? I mean, easily three in any all three of those markets. I mean, you got to see the cart, right? So you have an idea. I don't want to brag on behalf of the band. They're pretty modest about their business and it's big. It's fair to say it's at least four in each market would have worked. I think they could set up camp and play for a week based on the the sort of action that we saw on the dates of those. This band has reached a level um, both musically with people buying their music, their performances. There's nothing like it. Their live performances for the five guys in the band plus boom, there's nothing like it out there. So yes. And here's the deal. Very much like the dead when we were when we were doing the dead shows with Jerry, they'll go to every night they can. 
Karen's got 10 club members who oh, yeah. they go to every show. Yep. We'll sell tickets. And the reason I say they could set up for a week is because the guy who went on Monday is going to come back Wednesday and probably try to get tickets for Friday and Saturday. Oh, yeah. yep. So I have members I saw all throughout South America, yeah. all throughout Europe, and now they're here. Doing so the, the US repeat business the is what really just blows your mind when, um, and the other one you want to talk to are the hotels. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you, you couldn't get a hotel within three hours of Missoula the other night. And here in Chicago, we've got lots of hotel rooms, but the impact of these people, all you got to do is go out to the airport and watch the Pearl Jam t-shirts on the morning after the show. They're coming in from all over. So the repeat business, but look, we don't want to brag. We're just thrilled to be working with an artist that can sell tickets at, at this level. That's fair. Now you, you're playing the same markets except for Missoula for multiples in the States. You only pick three major markets this time. We haven't played a stadium at that level in Seattle. That was the first time they went into a, you know, that level right, stadium. The three markets you picked that you did multiples in you did multiple, so they're all yeah. basically destination cities. Yes. Since you guys aren't doing a full tour, people are definitely traveling, and I'm sure if you're pulling zip codes, and I'm guessing you probably are. We are. I'm sure you're seeing a good percentage of the house coming from out of the state. Out of the country. Yeah. It's a lot of that, right? It's They're, yes. they're, de they're all destination shows now. All of these are hand-picked markets, right? They are. Um, the I mean, band Seattle likes baseball. Gimme, right? But yeah, and, and it was the right time. It was. It Wrigley was, seems like it's now a gimme. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's become a second home market for them somehow. Well, it's Ed's, you know, being from Evanston. He, he grew up here. So it is his adopted home now is Seattle, as he told everybody last week. Um, and then Fenway. Listen, Boston as a music market is incredible. But then you add to it the intimacy of Fenway Park, that ballpark. You're not very far from, you know, I was talking with the sound engineer and it was really close to whether or not they need delay stacks. Those people in the upper deck are not that far from the stage. There are arenas that the people in the upper deck are further away than a seat at Fenway. So you add those elements to these size markets and this band, pretty special nights. Who sets the tone of the charitable face of the band? Does that come directly from the guys? Absolutely. They're working directly with the foundation on all of their various giving activism throughout the year all the time. I can't think of a scenario where it doesn't come from them. Yeah, it's in the DNA. So yeah. the, the it comes from the, the heart of the artist and it's fundamental. I mean, these guys come from a place where they haven't forgotten and, you know, they struggled for a, a room to sleep in and a roof over their head. And homelessness is something that, that it's easy for them to remember. They, they don't forget their past. And uh, then you add to that, they're artists, okay? They happen to be in a rock band. These guys are truly artists. And Jeff's graphics work and art and Ed and writing, all these guys. So artists are usually, if you, you know, there's pop stars and then there's artists. And artists are usually pretty well grounded in terms of what they can give back to a community. And so I think that's why it comes from really from the core. Can we talk about what was amazing two nights in Seattle and how quickly is a live event is and a promoter's life is? One second of chaos changed everything for you in Seattle the other night as an airplane got stolen. Yeah, I can say I hadn't dealt with that one before. But I got noticed that a SeaTac um, airport's probably about three miles away from the venue. Yeah, I mean, the airport is literally on approach as you're coming in. Right. Yes. And as we both live in Seattle, we do that all the time. Yeah. But you can't fly into Seattle without flying over yeah. those stadiums. Right. So it's we got that close. Yeah, so I got noticed from the, com uh, from the command post that an airplane, commercial airliner, has been stolen 
at CEDAC. Which is unique no matter where you are. This is national news. Yeah, that's just that alone. And so I had a, a moment where I thought, wow, that's really crazy. But then it struck me as I'm standing the bands about three songs into their set. And the next notice that I received was that they had uh, scrambled F-16s and they'd keep us posted. And I was like, you're damn right, you'll keep us posted because who knows. But very quickly, it was within minutes, we knew that the person who had stolen this plane was heading south. And you being a Seattleite know that it was obvious that he did not have anything horrible on his mind related to the city. It was simply just a kook who stole an airplane. But in that moment, Dan, I can tell you. A couple tense moments right yeah without a doubt yeah we were in the box office listening to air traffic control sending messages back it was scary we haven't even you and i haven't actually talked about that moment it was uh coming off of vegas and coming off of manchester and coming off of paris it's like as a promoter your first thought is we have a stadium full of people how do we protect them we could never have thought this my first thought in all sincerity was some kook stole a plane And then it was, do we have to empty this place? I mean, that was, I'm immediately thinking about, do we have to empty this place? And frankly, emptying an arena, uh, or for that matter, a stadium with 45,000, 47, we had 46,000 in that night. That could be as dangerous, if not more dangerous than the plane hitting it, because the hysteria could cause as much harm and and have as much carnage as, you know, someone who actually were to be as crazy as to bring an airplane into the building. So that's a balancing act. Um, And at that point, you know, as a promoter, we step aside in the local authorities. Uh, You're aware, I'm sure that the county sheriff was very involved. Um, At that point, you've got all of the local authorities thinking through the good news was um, he was only looking to take his own life. He, he was out on a joyride. We were very quickly able to ascertain that he was heading south. Um, he wanted to stay out over the sound and have fun in this airplane that he stole. And immediately upon him crashing, we were um, able to know that that was what his intentions were. But yeah, Dan, that was 40 years of doing shows that heart sank pretty fast. Now, in the Northwest, the Avid brothers had a similar incident just weeks ago where they literally had to cancel a show because somebody got in with a gun and the guys didn't take stage at, at Edgefield. So this coming weeks after that, and obviously in the new face of crazy madmen that we have to be worried about thinking of ways to cause harm on our fans that we've never ever thought to provide caution from no, just a new day a new age of problems yeah we're working hard on making shows safe yeah. public assemblage has changed its uh dynamics in terms of what we have to do and this this is reflected in mobile ticketing as well go ahead now with mobile ticketing we know exactly who the owner of that ticket is. It's traceable. It's not something you can just pass on and pass so on. So you're able to get them a message. We're able to get a messages and, and we, we know, know who who's in are. the building How and who's not. How can you do that? From the second you know there's a real problem to getting out of mass text to everyone that has an or an email, everyone that has a device that bought a ticket. How long from that we need to send a message to it going out? Can you now do that? I've talked with Ticketmaster about it because it's not only for the stadium setting, but presence can move far more swiftly. Presence, if you've got presence deployed, we think we can be have to double check myself on this with the TM guys, but my recollection is they can be 10 to 15 minutes max. It's just a matter of getting it 
composed and then getting it into the system, but sending it is instantaneous once it's on the screen and, and sent out. All of those um, telephone numbers are, are live numbers, so we just have to hit send and it's off. And we, you know, Rapino talked about this after Vegas. We had to step up our, our technology and, and see how we could develop technology that one would know who was in the venue at the time of the, of the incident and then be able to contact them so that we can make sure that we know that they're safe. The local authorities would like to see that technology. We want to see that technology. The fans want to see it because there are a lot of people who want to want to be able to tell their loved ones that everything's okay, that I'm all right. I could talk to you guys for hours, but we're at Wrigley and Soundcheck is clearly stouting. And that's how you truly know you're at a rock concert backstage doing a podcast is you can hear Soundcheck about to take this. But I wanted to thank both of you so much for taking time and explaining this extraordinary setup of the fan club and 10 club is amazing and what you guys have provided service-wise and created which other bands will now have access through Ticketmaster to do for their fans as well thanks for having us thank you amazing it really doesn't get any better than that Hey, it's Rich Best with Live Nation Los Angeles, and I'm on Promoter 101. Ticketmaster's David Marcus joins us to break down some of the new technology features that 10 Club is using to service their fans. After this interview, there were so many great things that pointed back to the Ticketmaster system that I thought it would be great to have David join us and maybe fill in some of those pieces and go a little bit deeper. So, David, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me back. This might be a special award. I think you're the first person to be on the podcast three times. <laughs> that is quite an award, and I'm happy to accept the honor. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things they were pointing to. So they actually brought up the concept of venues going away from the idea of a box office and moving to kiosks. Do you think that that actually is going to happen in the long term? That's interesting, right? The idea of the kiosk as sort of like an ATM for tickets has actually come and gone. In fact, Ticketmaster retired our kiosk product platform earlier this year. What's happening is as we move to digital tickets... And as people have their ticket in their hand on their mobile device, right, effectively a computer, we can talk to that computer without someone having to walk up to bulletproof glass window on the opposite side of a stadium. We can talk to that computer because we can have somebody standing at the gate they're at with another computer, a phone or an iPad that has access to all the account information, all the ticket information, and can just text an appropriate ticket, a replacement ticket, a modified ticket to that person standing right there. So in fact, we had that in operation for Pearl Jam at these stadiums. And you know, because of the way we set up this program, where we had 10 club members who really were in many cases, certainly at Wrigley, certainly in Missoula and at Fenway, had tickets that were issued by a system that was not the same system that tickets the venue. Where going to the box office would require them to go to a very particular window where they could interact with the 10 club. We replaced that with Ticketmaster personnel at the gates with iPads in their hands. And so if I had a problem at a very particular gate where I had to go in for the 10 club, instead of having to walk all the way back to the box office to the 10 club window, and I had an issue, I could just step aside to the person in the Ticketmaster shirt or the 10 club shirt with the iPad in their hand, give them my account information. They could pull up my tickets and send them to me right there. 
So it saved a ton of time. It saved a ton of walking around, a ton of nervousness and anxiety on the part of the fan. And that's really, I think, when Karen and Mark were talking about box offices shrinking, it's because we can move resolution to the edge. We can move it to where the fans are and they don't have to all come and stand in one long line and be freaked out by having limited access to a box office. And that's really the future is moving resolution right to the moment of entry. Okay, but in general, I mean, we're seeing the airlines and movie theaters also go to this concept where the kiosk, just like at a supermarket, has that automation and then there's people there to handle customer service when need be. So it seems like some of that is kind of happening in some of the other industries. Do you think that we'll see that in music in general at some point? Well, I mean, if you're talking about the access model where you walk in and you hold your phone under a device or against a reader, yes, no question. We don't necessarily need people carrying tickets or scanning devices with a handheld scanner, you know, union issues aside, right? So the technology is there to automate entry. But the box office has always played this very different role, which is I've got a problem. I need to pick something up. There's some interface I need with a human who's going to hand something across a window and we can replace that with computers at the edge. So whether it's a kiosk that I'm using NFC or RFID or some other symbology to access, or I get the red X that shows up on the kiosk and I have to step out of line. I don't want to walk all the way back to a box office. There's somebody there with another computer who can handle my problem, all of which shrinks the need to have a lot of box office staff. So it moves the cost of labor straight down because you're able to just use technology. Yeah. And it really simplifies the experience for the fan. Nothing worse than standing in a long line to get into a venue. You get to the front, your ticket doesn't scan. You don't understand why. And someone says, great, you got to walk to the box office. It's a block that way and then a block over. And then you have to get in another line. I mean, that just is a anxiety inducing experience. And for an artist like Pearl Jam, where a significant part of the experience for some of those 10 club members is GA. And my place in line is a function of how good of an experience I'm about to have. The faster we can resolve their concerns, the better experience they're going to have and and the more they're going to enjoy the artist. So you've thought about this quite a bit. (laughs) A little bit, a little bit. The fan experience is important to both the band and Ticketmaster. It's a good thing for the industry in general. Let's talk about Verified Fan. Now, Ticketmaster with Verified Fan is really cut down in the secondary market and Pearl Jam really pointed to you guys for that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's something that we had a lot of experience with by the time we rolled this out with them. We had, I think, done probably 60 plus tours by the time they put theirs on sale. We had across those 60 tours repeatedly demonstrated that we could reduce scalping by 90% plus. We were able to point to that data and just had a ton of confidence in it. It was extra special on this tour to be able to not only verify fans for the building we ticketed, Safeco, but to be able to verify fans for Wrigley, Fenway, and Missoula, which were ticketed by non-Ticketmaster ticketers. A lot of confidence in our ability to separate fans from industrial resellers and ensure that it's fans who got access to tickets. Now, in Seattle, where Safeco is a Ticketmaster venue, the band particularly pointed to that being an amazingly impossible ticket to get on the secondary market because of the control. Yeah. When all the pieces are working together and you've got an artist working hand in hand with a concert promoter and a ticketing company to execute what the artists wants the fans to experience, it works, right? And we've been able to demonstrate that with Pearl Jam at Safeco. And frankly, it worked at the other venues as well. You begin to lose a certain amount of control anytime you work with a professional sports team at a professional sports venue because they have commitments to season ticket holders, 
that don't necessarily find their way through the retail ticketing system. But for the retail tickets we distributed, we were able to deliver exactly the experience that the artist was hoping to deliver. Now, let's talk about that for a second. Now, you're able to work with venues that aren't Ticketmaster when it comes to the concept of verified fan. Is that an artist-based system? It is. You know, we are working very hard to build a variety of solutions that are directed at solving artist problems. And one of those problems is how do I identify who my fans are and ensure that they have access to tickets before someone whose sole interest is repricing and reselling my ticket. And we can do that in a venue that we ticket, and we can do that in a venue that someone else tickets if we're working closely with the artist. And so that's really what we did here. We basically validated those who wanted to go to the event, separated fans from, again, industrial resellers, and offered those fans access to a third party's ticketing system. Got to imagine you guys love to have inventory from venues that you don't even have contracted. That's just got to be extra revenue. So again, we did not sell the verified fan tickets. We simply verified the fans. We didn't make any money from selling the tickets. Okay, so it's an opt-in service. You're doing that as a service for the artist. Absolutely a service for Pearl Jam. Speaking of services, let's jump over to Platinum for a second. Pearl Jam said that they do do Platinum, a limited number of tickets, and then they donate that money to charity. Are you seeing that function happen more and more with some of the artists where they're keeping that money back from the secondary and then using it for something positive like charity? Some artists do that. You know, it is more common that artists take advantage of Platinum to secure market value for 2 to 5% of the tickets in a venue premium tickets where otherwise they would be getting repriced by a scalper. There are other artists who do it strictly for charity, and there are some that mix it, right? Some that get that market value and donate a portion of the lift to charity. And so for us, Platinum is probably the fastest growing artist and promoter product we've got, growing at 85% year over year and generating huge GTV. And it's because we've got the tools and the products we need to be able to get market value for those really special seats that otherwise would just be on the secondary market at some even greater multiple. I love the concept of platinum. It's just extra revenue going into the deal that no one ever factored when you cut the deal. It's just an amazing gift that shows up at the end of the night. Yeah. And it's not even near saturation. The percentage of inventory that is being put through the platinum product as a percent of total concert tickets sold is minuscule. It is a product we have a lot of high hopes for. Let's talk about presence for a second, because this seems to be the real feature that Pearl Jam really seemed to be excited about in the conversation with 10 Club. You guys built some things out way ahead of schedule for them and created some technologies that made the security work so they were able to avoid resellers and you could only transfer one ticket and only once. Can you talk about how you guys were able to implement that early and exactly how that technology worked? There were two problems we were trying to solve for 10 Club. One was the envelope stuffing problem and just the massive amount of manual labor that Karen and her team would have to go through to ensure that 10 club members got the seats that came with their seniority in the 10 club. Typically, literally, manual, maps, pulling names out of a lottery, associating them with the best seat. This one has a side view. This one has a better view, right? That whole thing Karen described. How do we automate that to eliminate the manual process and 
if we know in a venue what seats, you know, the priority order in which seats should be issued, and we know the list of eligible 10 club members, how do we merge those two and automatically assign seats? And we were able to adapt a product we built for season ticket holders and for our big sports venues and adapt that for the use of the 10 club to do the seat assignments. Then we took all those seat assignments and we turned those seat assignments into 100% mobile digital tickets. And every 10 club member is entitled to two. And those tickets showed up in our account manager product. And we built uh, an adaptation for those two tickets to ensure that one of those tickets was non-transferable and would always only be available to the account holder in their account. And that the second ticket could be transferred a single time. And that once transferred and accepted by the recipient, that ticket would become non-transferable. And that allowed, I guess Karen articulated, her to ensure and the 10 club to ensure that, you know, their expectations of their 10 club members were enforced, right? Typically what was enforced by standing in a long wheel call line, getting your tickets and having to walk right in the building hours before the show, no beer, no dinner, no hang. So we could enforce that behavior and treat the fans the way ultimately the 10 club really envisioned, which is as their core fans and really reward them with the freedom of being able to walk up to the venue whenever they wanted, whether they wanted to get in a long line for the GA or walk up as the show starting for their reserved seats and be confident that they had access to their tickets on their mobile device. Their show buddy had access to their ticket on their mobile device and transferability was not easy to do at all, right? And so we kept those tickets off the secondary market. That was for us, it wasn't a huge effort. It wasn't a small effort. You know, you don't want to take a lot of risk with an entity like 10 Club, right? Which is so precious to the band and those fans. You can't screw that up. So we spent a lot of uh, time and attention making sure we got it right. You know, so far, it looks like we kind of nailed it. There's definitely some stuff to learn for next time. But to be able to take that manual labor off of Karen and her team's hands, to be able to give fans that modern day experience and protect against you know, having really the best tickets, which, I, you know, Mark was really clear in that interview about how hard they work to ensure that 10 Club gets the best tickets every single night in every single venue. Those are not the tickets that anybody wants to see trading on the secondary market. And to be able to bring that all to bear for the band and deliver that. And then in every venue, have our access control, the Ticketmaster access control in the venue. As I noted, we did not sell the verified fan tickets, but we effectively managed all of the issuance and access control for 10 Club. So when you walked up to the 10 Club gate, you walked through a Ticketmaster presence scanner gate and the presence system scanned that ticket. And I was at most of the shows and stood there at the gates with my presence admin interface with Karen. And we just watched people tick through the venue, right? How many people are in? Oh, we have 27% of the fan club in. We have 33% of the fan club in, right? 80% are in, right? We, we were able to see every single person come through the door. And as I mentioned, we had those tablets or those iPads there for any 10 club member who had an issue. They could walk right up to an iPad, have that issue resolved immediately and continue right through the gate. It was the best of Ticketmaster's technology really from end to end. It was great. I really uh, feel for you that you had to go to all those Pearl Jam shows. That's brutal. <laughs> Honestly, like this whole thing as a fanboy, and I am a fan from 10 on, to be able to be part of bringing Ticketmaster back to Pearl Jam and the Pearl Jam fans, just a, just a massive moment from a career perspective. 
instead of just the convenience, let's talk about the absolute urgency in some of these things that Presence is doing. The ability that in an emergency, you actually have the contact info of everyone's phone that's in the venue that uses that Presence system. Whereas in case like Vegas, how importantly crucial that could be that you guys now have that in place with the system. Yeah, I think it's a big part of fan experience, in-venue experience, safety. There is the opportunity, which is we are in the process of rolling out, to message each fan individually. Vegas is a horrific example, but imagine a situation like we had this at Pearl Jam at Wrigley, right? On Monday night, we had a big storm come through. If every single person in the venue had been using the Ticketmaster app with the presence SDK in it, we could message them by location in the venue where the nearest safe place to take shelter is. Hey, if you're in this section, look for this door, go to this concourse, right? And you can do that immediately. It doesn't take a long time. It's minutes to deliver those messages. And so people know what they're supposed to do. You could even get it into the sort of more commercial setting out of the emergency setting and have artists being able to, to deliver marketing notifications, fan notifications, merch line notifications. There's all kinds of opportunities to notify fans or even do surprise and delight. Hey, you're in the upper deck and the top we know exactly where you're sitting. Why don't you come down to the front? We've got three seats you know, on the first row on the aisle reserved for you. And you can just do that all right in the context of the app. So it gives you a much more, really an incredibly targeted, personalized communication platform. And we're excited for the full rollout of that. So Karen had mentioned that the technology is so up to date that some people are having to switch up from their flip phones and buy new smartphones to be able to access all this. Are you guys seeing a lot of that, that you're having to bring people into the new day of technology so they can keep up with the standard of technology and use the system? I think that that's a fun moment to see the flip phone guy or hear from the flip phone person who just upgraded to a smartphone. It is not a common experience. I mean, we did the entire Taylor Swift tour, you know, more than 2 million tickets, 100% mobile. And there are a handful of experiences of people who you know, didn't have the technology they needed to get into the event. So we're at a moment in time where the switchover is not a big issue. Fortunately, the penetration of smartphones is just, it's almost ubiquitous. But I actually did, outside of one of the Safeco shows, meet the uh, apocryphal flip phone guy who literally walked up to the window and he held his phone up and he said, I'm that guy, printed him some tickets out of the box office and he walked in. So there are still some people out there, but for the most part, the technology is not an impediment. Now, I got to ask you from the other side of the business, the scalpers who have invested in the futures of these apps by buying, you guys are putting out of business the way that the dispensaries are putting weed dealers out of business. Do you feel bad about that at all? (laughs) I detect sarcasm, Steiny. I think it's incumbent on anybody in any business to constantly find ways to add value. You know, to the extent that people who are in the business of buying and reselling tickets can find ways to add value, God bless. I think we've reached a point of some absurdity where the sheer volume of ticket acquisition, you know, at pre-sale or on sale and the immediate repricing just shows how how little value is being added. It's one thing if a show is struggling and I could see somebody taking a risk and buying up some tickets because they think it's going to turn around by the time it plays. Okay, there's some factor value there. But for the most part, we're just dealing with opportunism, taking advantage of what artists are trying to accomplish 
in terms of having a relationship with their fans where price and brand are an important part of that relationship. And the way we view our job and, and my team's job is to try to figure out how do we allow artists to execute their vision and give them the tools to do that. And if their vision is they want to sell a ticket for 99 bucks that's otherwise worth 500, we got to figure out how to get a $99 ticket to someone who's going to use it. And so, you know, we take that very seriously and we got a lot of work to do, but we're laser focused. Well, clearly the technology is making it easier to deliver that ticket to the hardcore fan and at the price the band envisioned it. It seems like more than any other ticket company out there right now, you guys are having the best track record with the pieces you guys have put in place with your investments. Thanks. You know, we're passionate about it. David Marcus from Ticketmaster joining us, talking ticketing. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. David is just amazing at breaking down Ticketmaster's newest products. Makes me want to sign up as a client. I'm Lucy Dickens from ITB and I'm on Promoter 101. Tweets of the week. It just can't be avoided. Now it's time for the Tweet of the Week. When I'm the voice of reason, the world has become a very odd place. Man, I love you reading that, Jake, because it just seems right. <laughs> it should really never be the case, though, for either of us to be the voice of reason. When it comes down to that, danger, Will Robinson. This one actually comes to us from Mary Beth Onger. When the baby band playing at your festival gets caught selling their band comps on Facebook for $200, offering full access backstage and to the artists, including John Mayer and Dead and & Company. This is just dirty pool, no matter what the story. And clearly, just based on the lineup, I think we all know that this came from Lockin. But thanks, Mary Beth, for sharing that sketchiness. She didn't say who the act was, but I think we all suspect. Yeah, I've certainly got my suspicions, but I'm going to leave them with myself for now. You know, accepting the blame for anything that has ever gone wrong anywhere while not even being in the same state as a show in question. If your team fucks up, it's the same thing as you fucking up. Ain't that always the case, Jake? Yes, sir. I've taken the blame for many a teammate and team member in the past and obviously probably caused much more blame. But still, <laughs> shit rolls downhill. Right to me. Well, that does it for Promoter 101 Tweets. You can follow Dan at the Jew on Twitter. Hi, I'm Mitch Rose, co-head of the music department at CAA, and I'm on Promoter 101. We're celebrating birthdays from August 31st to September 6th, 2018. Can we say how old these people are? <laughs> I imagine most of them would prefer we didn't, but that's kind of awesome. Friday, August 31st, Straight No Chasers, Randy Shine, ICM's John Pleader, Leslie West from The Rave, and the legendary Steve Reichman. Saturday, September 1st, recording artist Supreme and legend from Grantley Buffalo, Grant Lee Phillips, William Morris's. Robbie Frazier, who many would say is the agent of the year, year after year, and from AEG Seattle, former manager of the damned, Andy Newrose Rowe. Sunday, Tyler Morden, Becky Mingus, and Dan Cowan from the legendary Tractor Tavern. And on Monday, September 3rd, Labor Day, please call your mothers and thank them for going into labor for you. Back goes to you, Chris Prosser. Greg Wolf, Nick Swartzen, Dion Garcia, and the favorite guy I wire money to, Jackson Herring. Tuesday, 9-4. Vectors, Ross Schilling, the legendary Bill Silva, and Kevin Gasser. Wednesday, September 5th, Jason Miller. They're still hoping you get a brand new Porsche. Amy Dials, Doc McGee. Oh, what can be said about him that hasn't been said already? Plenty, but we'll leave that to another episode. And Larry Chanchia. So it's funny. You could say it's Jason Miller, and then you're like, Jason Miller what? And you're like, Jason Miller from Live Nation. You're like, which Jason Miller at Live Nation? That's the genius of that. But yes, Jason Miller, Live Nation, Asia. Anyway, Thursday, 9-6, Chad Anderson. Happy birthday to all of you from all of us here at Promoter 101. 
John Valentino with AEG Presents, and here we are on Promoter 101. Come on, guys. We don't get enough fan mail, so please feel free to write to us at stymie at promoter101.net and ccsancho at rocksoft.com if you'd like a very personal reply. Quote of the week comes to us from Beth. When I'm recording, anything goes. You always find interesting things that way. I bet that's true with Beck because he's always so kitchen sinky about his music. And that's kind of why we love him. Just kind of throws it all in there, huh? It's like a recording casserole when it comes to Beck. We'll be back next week with a brand new Promoter 101 with CAA Nashville's Brian Hill, Jam Concert's Nick Miller, and Live Nation's Brad Domash will join us for three questions. Wishing you sold out shows for the weeks to come. Cheers, motherfuckers. Jim Glancy Barry presents on Promoter 101.